0: Hey, what's going on? Happy Monday. Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. I'm joined, as always, by Canucks insider Thomas Strand. You can also read his work covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game, now found together online at DLEAMC.com, coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and uh, what a day, what a show. Not only is it the Leafs on the brink of getting swept in the second round day, Drancer, it is also, of course, NHL Draft Lottery. Day. Coming up later this evening at 5 o'clock on Sportsnet TV and, of course, right here on Sportsnet 650.
1: Well, sorry, wouldn't you say that Wednesday is going to be the Leafs on the brink day? Well, today, Today is the proper panic about the Leafs' yeah. deficit and enjoy, like, the... Shat- today is schadenfreude day.
0: But you know what's great is tomorrow is, too, because they've got the extra day. We have, we have an extra day off to really enjoy the takes and enjoy the panic in Toronto. It's fantastic. Yeah. So... Where do we start? Do we start with Pedard? Yeah, let we mean we, we we may as well. And here's the thing, it's like we have to talk about the lottery and obviously it's huge, but it's also it's just a mathematical process. There's not a lot of like analysis like who do you think's going to win? It's like I don't know. Probably one of the teams with the highest odds. Probably not the Canucks, but hey, they still have a three percent chance, so I'll take it. I-, I will say it's a Yeah, when it comes to random drawings, anything can happen. Yes, exactly. I will say it's a very weird sensation because obviously the Canucks have been in the running for draft lotteries before, but this feels a lot different than like, you know, the Nico Heesher draft lottery or something like that. Like, or even the Austin Matthews draft lottery. Like this, the the closest sensation I can come up with uh to describe this is as if you had a lottery ticket for like a fifty million dollar lottery, and then for some reason they like pre-announced a list of possible winners, and you knew you had a three percent chance before they actually were drawing it. Like that's what oh, it that feels sounds like. exciting. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> but it's like I I'd, I'd be
1: into that. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I think it's more like I think it's more like I, I'm trying to think of the right analogy because it's more like they're going to pre-announce the odds, right, mm-hmm. and If all you do is stay still for 10 minutes, you get 6% odds, or you can go reach for the bag of Doritos and enjoy those over the course of 10 minutes, but then you get 3% odds. And, and this team couldn't postpone the gratification for 10 minutes. So it's a little more disappointing. And honestly, I can't separate that from today. Like, today should be a much more exciting day than it is in in Vancouver, given that Bedard is a lifelong Vancouver Canucks fan, right? Given that he's from North Vancouver, given that he is the best prospect to ever come out of Western Canada, ever, and certainly is the best prospect uh, since uh, Connor McDavid, right? One of three guys this century— to score two and a half points or more as a 17-year-old in CHL competition. The other two, Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, and this guy. And the Vancouver Canucks behaved in a way completely incongruent with how every other team in similar circumstances did um, toward the end of the season, right? They were the only team that changed coaches. Uh, They played Quinn Hughes more minutes than anyone else in the NHL. Did you see the Jack Hughes, Luke Hughes interview with uh, TNT? Mm -hmm. Because Rick Tockett was on the panel. And they sort of start being like, hey, like, uh, what does Quinn Hughes think of playing for Rick Tockett? And first of all, super unfair question to pose to anybody. Because as I like to say, the shortest pamphlet in the league is players that like to play um, for their coach. Okay. The second the second smallest pamphlet, by the way, is coaches that like their team. But Quinn Hughes, we heard him at the end of the season availabilities talk about, you know, he was the only guy who went as far as to say, you know, I, I hated seeing what happened to Bruce, but it's probably the right call based on what we've seen under, under talk. And so genuinely, Jack was like, Jack Hughes says, oh, I don't want to, you know, guss up Rick too much. <laughs> meaning that the feedback from Quinn is through the roof as of course. Yeah. No one in the league played more than Quinn did under Rick Tockett. Of course he loves it. Um, JT Miller and Elias Pettersson, both top 15, a nice time among forwards. And of course Thatcher Demko. Once he returned from injury um, played more games than anyone, but Georgiev, whose team was, you know, trying to win the division. And then all the like wild card contender goalies, Saros, Markstrom, hellebuck um if you had one of those things happening like hey they were the only team that changed their coach that's one thing if they had two of them happening they're the only team that changed their coach and Quinn Hughes played the more, most minutes of anyone in the league okay I, I, I start to get annoyed but I can tolerate it when you have those two things plus Petterson in the top five among forwards a nice time and JT Miller top 15 I start to get like really upset and then when you ride thatcher demco the way they did it's just like this is ridiculous and and for me i can't get over the way that this organization's excruciating silliness right the simple mindedness of like we try to win always which is vancouver canucks dna like you know right down to the mitochondria and you think about like think about 2021 which was a disastrous summer for this franchise. And you decide to bring back Jim Benning. Travis Green gets an extension. But you don't just bring back Jim Benning. Like February 2021, Jim Benning under fire in this marketplace, gives a press conference. And what does he say? He says, we're two years away. (laughs) And the market lost it because everyone kind of knew Jim was right. But it was his fault, given that the club was held back by commitments to Louis Erickson and Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel. It was like everyone knew that was true, but no one could hear it from Benning, Mm. right? Five months later, five months later, he's all in to the point of doing the Oliver Ekman-Larsen trade, right? Which, again, it's just like the inability to delay gratification strategically for even a second— and that sort of brings us to today where, look, hopefully Vancouver's long odds play because the prizes at the top of this draft lottery, whether you win the first drawing or the second, and there's going to be a sense in this market that if Vancouver wins the second, it's like, oh, classic Canucks. And it's like, no, 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 well, no. Adam Fantilli I- and Leo Carlson and maybe even Will Smith. Like, first of all, they for sure all would have been first overall picks last year, but yep. also very much could be first round picks and like. of the last 10 drafts, right? Like, these are all remarkable prospects, in particular Carlson and Fantilli. That's still a huge win for this team. So their long odds may play, but the process underlying it, the desperation, the inability to think strategically in, in, in the big picture sense remains a massive concern regardless of how the draft lottery balls drop and whether they drop in Vancouver's
0: favor or not today. See, I'm past the concern with the process, at least for today, right? Like it's no. obviously frustrating, but now I am living in no, the ye- moment. I'm living in it. the moment right no, now. That's, no, it's true that's, though. That's, like when I you, think, are the, you saying? Are you saying you live day to day? You're a day to day analyst now, well, Jamie. Hey, I'm not. You I'm take not, it day by I, day. I, I'm not the GM, so it's not as bad for me to live day by day. No, but it's what still I'm bad. Is You're my co-host. I'm looking in- I expect more. <laughs> We're a team. What man. I'm saying is, I'm capable. Up your game. I'm capable of separating what you're describing and just the event of the lottery tonight and the emotion. Okay. Dan, Riccio. and like the psychological <laughs> space of the lottery tonight. Right. And again, it's uh, the one thing I will say, is I look, can't look, it's, it's all connected, man. It's a 97% chance that they're not going to win. I get that. I understand that. I'm not here for the, like, well, it's actually impossible for them to win. Cause the Canucks are cursed. And you know, the hockey gods will never let the Canucks win or the NHL will never let the Canucks win. Like, it's three percent. Three percent is three percent. And, and the thing with that is, I understand it as kind of an emotional hedge, right? Like you don't even want to allow yourself the thin hope that the Canucks will, in fact, win the lottery. So you just write it off as a possibility. And hey, you'll probably, you'll almost certainly be correct. We all know that's how it's going to go. But it's, it's not. Don't be fatalistic about it. Like they have a three percent chance. Just that's it. And okay, Jamie, you, you mean you're probably going to be disappointed still, but you don't have to pretend like it's a curse. Like the fix is in here. Jamie, the Canucks are a cursed franchise, and that's okay. <laughs> See, because... I know
1: you don't believe that. I know you don't no, no, believe no, no, no. that. I I don't believe that they have a 0% chance of winning the draft lottery. I believe they have a 3% chance, but I also do believe that there's a certain gravity and weight to Vancouver's history that, you know, causes bizarre results, causes anxiety, anxiety. Within the organization internally, if they're hosting a, a high stakes playoff home date and the other team scores first, there's a weight that is brought to bear as a result of Vancouver's curse status, right? Um, not unlike the Red Sox or the Cubs, not
0: unlike the Toronto Maple. Leafs. So, <laughs> see, I don't three percent odds. That's different percent odds. Curse though, right? Like a curse is the explanation that people give to that, but it's not. It's not a curse in the way that people commonly say it. It's just frustration at fifty plus years of of not getting it done. That's what it is. It's descriptive rather than
1: prescriptive. But it but it's a fair description. The Vancouver Canucks are one of the true cursed franchises in North American professional sports. We can go over the bona fides. Like, like let me let me tell you this fact. Let me remind you of this, and then and then you can tell me cursed or not cursed. The very first time that the Vancouver Canucks lost a draft lottery was actually the first time that a draft lottery was ever held in NHL history. And everyone remembers the sort of Black Tuesday spin of the wheel. But do you know that that day started with a coin flip to decide which team would pick the high or the low numbers Mm -hmm. and punch Imlac won the coin flip? He was the Buffalo Sabres general manager. They then actually had three spins of the wheel that day. Do you know this? Yep. Have you heard me do this before? I think so, yes. But that's okay. So the first spin, the first spin was to do waiver priority, right? Like who cares? Who gets first waiver priority? Mm-hmm. Buffalo one. The second spin was who gets first pick in the expansion draft. Also not a huge deal. Buffalo one. <laughs> and then it was the Gilbert Perot spin of the wheel, and the, and that one Buffalo one. So Vancouver lost four 50-50 draws to open their existence as a franchise. They're the only team in NHL history that hasn't won a cup to lose in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, and they've done it twice. Um, You know, the Canucks are a truly cursed franchise, and that's okay. Like That unites us. There's a a sense of fatalism and pain that that brings Canucks fans together.
0: See, but again, Uh, it's that they have had bad luck and bad results, but that doesn't mean they're cursed. Right, no, it's descriptive. It's yeah. a description. But but uh, I'm not saying they're see, cursed. You're forever. playing into it. You're playing into it, though, because I think a lot of people do think, do end up thinking that it's like well, something actual, tangible about the franchise that is cursed. No, I mean, the <laughs> you're you're there are parts of it that might be, <laughs> uh,
1: but no, the, the 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 stop squirreling my point. Okay, just let me go. Let me cook, Jamie. Um, I want to talk about this. In the context of the Toronto Maple Leafs, okay? Because the Vancouver Canucks have 3% odds of winning the draft lottery and and none of us think it'll happen and we're all probably right, okay? The Toronto Maple Leafs are staring down the barrel of a 3-0 series deficit and no one thinks that they're not cooked. They probably are. What's the percentage chance historically of a team trailing 3-0 in a series, pulling off the old hashtag reverse sweep? (laughs) It's probably something like three percent, two percent, something like that. Two percent exactly. Yeah. Four four times it's happened four times in NHL history, uh, in two hundred and three tries. So two percent odds, three percent odds, and and I was thinking about this when the Maple Leafs went down three nothing, and my wife's family group chat just turned into like the most incredible invective. Like I was enjoying it so much, just Drance laughing so hard at some of the meanest things ever being said about a hockey team. It was it was great, and. I was thinking about this because one thing to keep in mind is being down three, nothing does not mean you're dead. It means you're on life support, Mm -hmm. right? But at the end of the day, the Leafs chances of winning uh, this series are like, not too significantly different from the Canucks' odds of winning the Bedard draft lottery. And Hey, that could happen. And I often think about this because I tend to think that when there's a weight, a weight from a curse, even though that curse is, as I, I agree with you, not of supernatural or fatalistic origin, mm-hmm. but, but the sense of a curse around a franchise that for that team to get over the hump, they tend to need a moment of true catharsis, like an act of God style moment. And I think about this because, you know, I, I was in high school in 04 when the sh- sh- Boston Red Sox eliminated a 3-0 deficit against the New York Yankees. Right? They were the first team in baseball history to do that, stormed back to win the World Series, ultimately the next round. Uh, 2016, the Chicago Cubs. My, my stepdad's a huge Chicago Cubs fan. And, of course, they blew the lead in the eighth inning. And then the rain came, and there was a significant rain delay after Chicago had blown the lead late. And then Ben Zobris lines it down the left field line, and they break the curse. I even think about this with the St. Louis Blues. Prior to the St. Louis Blues winning, they were the only other team in company with the Vancouver Canucks who'd lost a Stanley Cup final game seven without having previously won a cup, right? And they were a constant playoff team, like one of the most successful regular season teams uh, in NHL history. They were sort of like the San Jose Sharks before the San Jose Sharks were the San Jose Sharks. And for them to win the cup, you know, they had to be last in the NHL (laughs) midseason, storm back and then people forget this, but Game 6, they had a chance to clinch the cup on home ice in Game 6, 5-1. 5-1 loss to the Boston Bruins, and everyone was sure it was done as the series relocated back to Boston. We all know what happened. I sort of have this belief that, you know, the Leafs are probably cooked. They're probably going to lose. Uh, they look slow, mm-hmm. in in my opinion. And, man, their top players do not appear to have any dog in them, like not even a Datsun, <laughs> and yet, if the Leafs are ever going to do it, don't rule out the possibility that it would look something like this. Like it would look something something like this, and and I just want to add this, which is, I remember twenty eleven after the Canucks defeated the Blackhawks, and the pressure. Of blowing that 3-0 series lead and the way that the Black Ho- Hawks stormed back. I, I called them the Hawks there. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. The Blackhawks stormed back. And then the Jonathan Taves moment, and we all remember it. Like, I guarantee you, you remember exactly where you were. And I guarantee you, our listeners all remember exactly they, where they were when Taves put that shorty in. It was just like staring at the abyss. Yep. You know? And after that moment, the catharsis of that moment. Like I was so sure right up until the moment that it became clear that they weren't going to win that seventh game against the Boston Bruins, that they were going to pull it off. Like I was so sure because I felt like this cursed franchise had been through their moment, had been to the nadir and, and it survived. And anyway, just the thing I think about a lot, like as, as certain as everyone feels that the Canucks aren't going to win the draft lottery, like in some ways, the way that they played their way out <laughs> of, of good draft lottery standing and on and on is kind of like the darkest before. I was like, going to say, you have to Canucks... hit like the
0: dark the dark soul of the night point, right, where it seems like all That's hope is I'm lost. Saying. Yeah. If
1: the Canucks are going to win the draft lottery, it feels like it would look as ridiculous as possible, yeah. i.e. the way it looks right now, where where like truly they would not deserve it at all. They would have behaved in just like an absolutely uh, crushingly silly, self-destructive way soared their odds and then they'd win and just like the maple leafs were never going to win a cup without drama they were never going to be like and they won a series in six and then a series in five and then a seven then it survived a seven gamer and then like it was always going to require some kind of drama until you're at a hundred percent until you're eliminated until the handshake line has happened don't count your chickens
0: well and i gotta say the, the the comparison with the Blackhawks series and what the Leafs are going through is really interesting because, look, I get why the fans, the Leafs fans reacted the way they did when they beat Tampa, right? Because they've just been getting punched in the stomach in the first round over and over and over again. And finally, that didn't happen. But the thing is, you can't actually shake a history of failing in the playoffs in the first round. Like, by definition, it's not possible, right? It's still only the first round. You can be happy, you can be excited that you finally got over that hump, but you can't get the monkey off your back in the first round, and this was always a possibility. Now, granted, it wasn't... I'm not saying I knew they were going to down go down 3 nothing or anything like that, but there was always a chance that as soon as they encountered adversity in the second round, we'd be kind of back to square one, talking about a lot of the same things. And it just so happens that it's they're down 3 nothing and their star players haven't scored a goal. <laughs> and they look lost and they played horribly last night. Like all those things are true, but I do like, we even mentioned this on the show, right? How funny it was that after they beat Tampa, all of a sudden the Dubas conversation was like He's got more leverage than any GM ever. He's going to get this incredible deal. Like, it's all, this is Dubis's time to shine. It's like, well, they won in the first round. They won in the first round. Like, by definition, you cannot shake the, the a label of being a playoff failure in the first round. The difference with the Canucks was it wasn't about an inability to win a round in the playoffs. They had done that in each of the previous two seasons. It was specifically about the Blackhawks. So they could legitimately get the monkey off their backs by beating the Blackhawks and then kind of play with house money. The Leafs, it's just like, well, okay, that's good. That's step one, but that's not actually the assignment. That's not actually the goal. And even as Sheldon Keith said, I think it was today, like, yeah, we're kind of back to asking a lot of the same questions about this team that we have in round one in years past. And if they get swept or they lose in five, like it's not going to feel any different. It's not going to feel any better for Leafs fans because oh yeah, you won in the first round, big whoop. I agree with you largely,
1: most almost solely, but I'd say one thing, which is that the Leafs are built. Like, go check that cap-friendly page. There is no elite team in the league that's as easy to disassemble as the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, with the exception of the John Tavares deal, and even that one doesn't last that much longer. Like, if that team decided they wanted to rebuild... like what's Nylander netting? What's you know, like the even their star star players don't have like miles of term on nope. those deals. Like they're not restrained at all. In fact, the composition of the team would enhance uh their ability to monetize and get value. Like if they wanted to change direction, you know, when we talk so much about how like the Canucks would be stuck and like even if you wanted to rebuild it would be a multi-year process. And like the Leafs could do it in a week. And if I was them, given the way that this core group has performed, right? Given the way that they've historically performed with the chips are down in the playoffs, I'd care a lot about the response here. Like I would I am not kidding, and I'm a, I'm a bit of an emotional guy, but like if I was in Kyle Dubas's shoes and 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 I didn't have one foot out the door, <laughs> I'd be yeah. like, "Look, look, Marner left wing, Matthews center, Nylander right wing. Throw them all together. We're loading them up. We're loading them up." If they don't bring it, win or lose, like if they don't bring it game four and five and six and wherever this goes, I'm blowing this team up. Like that would be how I'd feel about it. So I agree with you that like you can't shake the label even if they lose in five versus but I still think it matters how you respond. I still think it matters how players perform, how they deal with pressure. And, and if I'm the Leafs, given how long it's taken to get here, given where this team's at, like, I'd want to see, especially the the best players on this team who've basically been no-shows in this series, like, I'd want to see them make a case to get another shot after this. Like, that, that I think, those are real stakes yeah. that should be on this team regardless of whether or not they can pull off a uh, uh, the uh, nearly impossible with no margin for error.
0: Well, I think pretty clearly everything is going to have to be on the table, right? From the coach to the GM to maybe other executives to player personnel, right? Because I have, like um, – it, it takes me a while to go to, like, mentally soft as a reason why a team can't win in the playoffs. And I, I don't even know if mentally soft is the right way to put it. If they get swept, if they lose in five, and they don't show the pushback that you're talking about, I don't – like. <laughs> it's really hard to make the argument that this core, that, that core should be kept together when they just keep running into the same problem over and over and over again. And I think if that does transpire, and we'll see on Wednesday, there's really, again, everything is going oh, to be on the table in Toronto. And it should be, but yeah.
1: let's also not overstate, like getting outplayed by an inferior team in a six-game series win and then getting swept in round two – That could be the story of the Maple Leafs, but it's absolutely the story of the Florida Panthers 12 months ago. Mm. Like, literally to a T, what happened to the Florida Panthers. And by the way, Matthew Kachuk, before the last 10 games of his playoff career, 15 points, 27 games, minus 11. Yep. Like, there's a lot of Calgary Flames fans who reacted to the Bruins taking that 3-1 series lead by saying stuff like, that's the playoff Matthew Kachuk we know. It's amazing how much things can change in two weeks. It's amazing how, you know, you can require the Blackhawks to beat the Penguins to get into the playoffs. You can be down 3-1 against the best regular season team in NHL history. Then you can be down a goal in the last minute of game seven. And 10 days later, you're like the clutch team that knows how to win. It's wild. But that's how quickly things can change in hockey, including at the draft lottery where anything can happen <laughs> yes, and where Bedard would certainly change
0: everything for this franchise. Uh, we got to take a break. Shana Goldman of The Athletic joins us next talking all things Stanley Cup playoffs. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.
1: The most comprehensive Canucks coverage
2: in the city. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or
0: Welcome back to Canuck Stock Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online. At DunbarLumber.com, Shana Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast is going to join us momentarily here and in fact uh she is on the line right now so we're very pleased to welcome Shayna goldman uh, who covers the nhl for the athletic back to the show shana thank you as always how are you
2: i'm good thanks for having me
0: yeah it's our pleasure um lots to get into with the playoffs but just before uh, we do that it is lottery day uh, from a pure like entertainment perspective do you have a preferred destination for Connor Bedard and don't don't feel pressure to say the Canucks just because you're on Vancouver just be honest <laughs> be honest with us
2: no see the entertaining part would be the Canucks not getting him I think <laughs> um, for me it's the Blue Jackets for, for all the right reasons because like the Blue Jackets tried and then they you know they broke it wasn't fully their fault they just broke so much they really tried to be good so I think the idea of him and Johnny Gaudreau could be kind of fun they need a center
0: yeah, that would be nice, and uh, I, I know he has a relationship with Ken Johnson there too, so that uh, that could be pretty entertaining. But uh, I don't know. I, I also want to see him somewhere like in so, at least something approximating a big market. I think I would like to see that, but we will see how it shakes out tonight. Uh, I, I wanted to start start with the uh, the Devils and the Hurricanes series. Devils get a massive win in Game Three. What went right for the Devils to get back in that series?
2: Yeah, it felt like there was just a little bit more resilience from them. Like it's a different series than the Rangers. But there is something to being able to come back from being down to nothing, you know, once the series shifts. This time it was on home ice, last time it was, you know, while being away. I think something that helped was getting away from the Jordan Stall matchup a little bit for Jack Hughes. But overall it just felt like the team has found ways or remembered how to play to their strengths. You know, as the playoffs have progressed and there has been some ebbs and flows with it, but it just feels like they figured out, like, the right adjustments to make at the right times. So they're a more dangerous team than we saw in games one and two when it was the four forecheck and the Kane system. That was the story.
1: Shayna, how is Jordan Stahl not a Selkie nominee, um, especially when Mitch Marner is?
2: Okay, so I didn't have Jordan Stahl on my ballot. He wow. just... Uh, fell off actually it was i had backland on there because i do think that there's a little bit of a two-way element to it um i mm-hmm. think the reason he's not on there is because of points because we know points tend to leave the conversation points plus minus short-handed usage and things like blocks and face-off wins those are going to decide what the selfie nominees are so often which shouldn't be the case is how do you turn defense into offense how do you make the smart defensive play and transition back up the ice. He does those things, but I do think that there were players that stood out for it a little bit more like uh, Backlund for me. The fact that he was turning defense into offense more consistently than years past impressed me a lot, um, and a lot of it came at five-on-five versus just power play production like we see from some players when that shouldn't be the case. And, uh, you know, players like Joel Arsenek always impressed me, and Nico Heischer really did this year too. But Stahl should be in the conversation, absolutely. He, He got robbed of it this year.
1: I also had Backlund on my ballot, and I think I overlooked Jordan Stahl's point production because I apply like a conversion rate to Carolina Hurricanes' scoring totals. I just assume they'd be 20% <laughs> higher with any other team. Shane I want to ask you about the brilliant piece that you wrote at The Athletic today about recycled coaches. And in particular, I want to read uh, a section from it uh, about Gerard Gallant, who was of course, uh, or parted ways with the Rangers, I suppose, officially uh, over the weekend. <laughs> um, this was the talent evaluator who, who rebuked the Panthers' acquisition of Jared McCann and barely used Thomas Tatar in the playoffs with Vegas, instead insisting on using the likes of Eric Goodbranson and Jared Tenorti through the years, the coach who refused to use the supporting tools and information around him in the decision-making process. Um, That last sentence in particular, I think, has echoes of some of the commentary and and criticism, even internal criticism, lobbed at Bruce Boudreau in the Vancouver market over the course of the past uh, six months, I'd say, as the organization changed in Vancouver. How much has the autonomy of head coaches in this league shifted over the course of the past six, seven years, in your view?
2: That's a good question. Um, You know what? I really think it depends on the situation. It depends on how much management wants it to be a collaborative effort, right? It, it, it varies everywhere. And I think we see with some teams when you have a John Cooper, a Jared Bednar or a Mike Sullivan, you should be looking for your coach's input. It feels like in Pittsburgh that wasn't the case with Sullivan this year. And maybe they could have made some brighter decisions had they consulted their coach a little bit more, but It does seem like there's a separation of powers, and to an extent there should be, right? If the general manager is a general manager, they're not the person behind the bench. They're not the one making the day-to-day decisions. But I think that in some cases, the team priorities have to come first and foremost, and those start at the top and have to trickle down through everyone, that there has to be some sort of collaboration. If you're the Rangers, right, your priority, along with competing, does need to be prioritizing development to a point that you can maintain your competitive nature throughout it, but ensuring that the players that you invested in to extend this playoff window that started earlier than expected can become those difference makers. But the fact that the Rangers shouldn't have had to spend so much on right wings, if they had capo playing at the level that's expected of him or before that it was off, or right now it's Alexi Lafreniere, like that has to be, I think a collaborative effort to a point that, the coach is buying into what the general manager wants to. And while they can bring in their own takes on how to do it and how to get there, that messaging, there needs to be a little bit more, you know, communication between it. So as much as coaches should be, you know, leading the way at their job and they shouldn't be micromanaged. I just think that if you can, if you can be a little bit more open-minded with things, I think you'll last a a long time in this league. And that's something that we know Galant isn't, you know, he's someone that, Wants certain players and doesn't want certain players and refuses to use them, and that stubbornness has cost him. When you can't decide, well, I don't like this player because they were traded for X. I'm not going to use him out of out of that fact alone. Like that, you know, I, I don't think can happen. I don't think you can have that autonomy behind the bench.
0: Uh, talking to Shannon Goldman of the Athletic here is one of the problems with the NHL's you know appetite for hiring these recycled coaches over and over again is one of the issues that we're just not that good at evaluating coaching. So if a co if a head coach has success with a certain team, you know, they get a lot of the credit, but maybe there were other things going on. They weren't actually the driver of that success, but I feel like we have a hard time kind of disentangling what's coaching, what's personnel, what's other things.
2: What are we good at evaluating? Like, <laughs> honestly, it's like, well,
0: speaking for mean- me, I'm not sure you probably a lot more than me, but <laughs> <laughs> elite forwards. Think- and that's it.
2: Yeah, elite forwards and scoring, and even that, there's controversy on on it, because if you use a word like coursey, it's like everything's broken. With coaches, they get credit for things, and goaltending has a ton to do with it, right? Like, if there's a streak of bad goaltending, a coach might lose their job. That's unfortunate. It's the way it goes in this league, um, even if it's not the right way. With player development, too, sometimes, you look at someone like Adam Fox, right? How much credit did David Quinn get for what he did in New York versus – everybody knowing Fox had this in him the entire time and just giving him the minutes is what he needed. You know, there's, there's tweaking that coaches can do and adjustments and things like that. Sure. But it, it's always interesting who gets credit for what. Um, it feels like we have to get better at separating it. And there should be, there should be some overlap though, right? Like it's not a player was good on their own period. The economic David is one of the few exceptions, to that, and even with different coaching, which we see with Woodcroft, we're seeing adjustments, in their game last year it's the way he's deployed it might be so there's credit for things like that too we need to figure out how to separate it we need to see where the overlap is and just be honest about it when we evaluate coaches because it feels like we keep getting things wrong um and the jack adams awards nominees tend to be like a prime example of that when guys like jared bednar who came into a lineup with the avalanche that was not built for him stylistically you know they found a way up from there And you look at what he's done with the team the year that they won, the way that he built on their versatility and leaned into their strength, right, after they lost to Vegas and figured all that out. That's a credit to him by keeping the messaging consistent, keeping the players patient, and just finding out a way to round out their games and figuring out different options to have in that lineup. Nathan McKinnon's going to pop off. That's great for him. He's not responsible for that necessarily, unless he's clearly putting him in a position to succeed that he wasn't before. But he gets credit for the system built around it. So it's a little bit of both, but we just need to be honest about what it is and not just credit coaches or discredit them because it works with the narrative, right?
0: You know, I I think another issue here is that there's kind of an inherent conservatism to hiring a recycled head coach, right? Because, hey, they've done the job before. Maybe they've had a little bit of success. It's, It's the safe play. You're not sticking your neck out on somebody who's never done it before. But if you were advising an NHL team looking for a head coach, where do you see as kind of those untapped, Uh, areas where, you know, instead of looking for somebody who just got let go from their second job or maybe even, you know, instead of looking for an assistant coach of a really good team, where are some of those non-traditional areas you would look for NHL head coaches?
2: Yeah, that's the funny part, right? Like, it's the risk of going with someone unproven. Meanwhile, it's a risk to go with someone who was just fired for what they did with another team and thinking, it will just apply to your team and be fine, or the risk of thinking that they're going to adapt on their fourth NHL head coaching job when they haven't in one, two, three before that. Um, I think we look at some of the most successful head coaches right now. We do see success from former AHL head coaches. That's the case with Bednar, Mm -hmm. with Cooper, and with Sullivan. But Sullivan has experience as an assistant coach as well before that. Um, those are the three that stand out to me, but I, I, you know, there's someone like Rod Brindamore who came up as an associate coach. It's just giving those younger level, younger coaches a shot, um, giving, you know, the former player like Rod Brindamore, someone like Marty St. Louis, the shot, like there is value to that. It's not that, you know, they can't be a former player, but I think that like, the name recognition can't be everything. It's, it's taking a leap for someone who has, different ideas at any level. It's just breaking past the same names that we keep hearing. You know, this summer, it's going to be Peter LaVillette and Daryl Sutter and Gerard Gallant when it should be, who's the next Marty St. Louis? Someone who might not have coaching experience, but was the ultimate player who was good at legitimately everything and worked so hard to get that way. And that's the same thing with Rod Brindamore, who put in a system that legitimately no team can compare to the system that they've built and maintained that anybody can step in and thrive. And then it's the Coopers and the Bednars. Look at the different approaches they had. Bednar was someone who had rovers at the AHL level uh, with Cleveland. And look at how he's applying that to the NHL level. So it's less finding where it's, it's looking for the right things, you know, looking for that innovation innovation and creativity that we're just not seeing at this level.
1: Shana, the Dave Haxtell experience in Seattle has really opened my eyes because... I wasn't a fan of the work in Philadelphia. I'm a massive fan of the work in Seattle and not just because of the success they're having in the playoffs, but the way that they've played all season, the discipline with which they have played and the aggression uh, of their systems play in particular, the speed that they play with um, the second chance head coach is sort of a fascinating one and has been ever since. Like, I feel like Pete DeBoer in 2012 with the devils really crystallized that conversation um do you view the second chance coach a little bit differently than the like career coach on opportunity number five?
2: Oh yeah absolutely like not every coach is going to come into the league and just crush it like John Cooper did and become the longest tenured coach that doesn't that doesn't happen I think we see it with a lot of coaches like sometimes They're brought in, let's say you're an NCAA coach. There's a good chance you're being brought into a rebuilding team because you're someone that can handle, Mm. you know, an ever-changing roster and molding young players. That team might be a mess that you walk into, and that's something you can't alone fix. Or maybe you were only brought in for a part of the process of, like, a specialist. I think that coaches can definitely learn on the fly, and those who can't and aren't willing to shouldn't be in the conversation anymore. It's all about those who can learn. Mike Sullivan was a head coach. Then he was an assistant coach, an associate coach for years before he went to Pittsburgh's AHL club. That Now he's a head coach again. Like, there was a big gap for him to learn from. And even if there's a quicker turnaround, we can see that improvement. I'm sure Haskell learned a ton between his first two stints. John Hines seems to have, too, even though there wasn't much time in between. Even someone
0: mm.
2: like Paul Maurice can learn, it seems, between coaching opportunities. And he's, you know, a lifetime coach. But I think that there definitely is something to Learning on the fly in this job and and figuring out where to go. I think second-chance coaches are a good thing in this league, for sure, because, you know, Bruce Cassidy is another one who's an example of that. Like, it may not be perfect in shot one. It's all about what they do in that second shot, for me, that decides on whether they should be that third-time coach, let's say, if things don't work out for them. If they show a huge turnaround and a total difference of approach from that first time. Like they might be the right pick to keep giving those shots to instead of the coaches who are already at number four and five right now and keep striking out. The
1: coaching thing for me is so fascinating because so much of what makes a coach good, what, what their job entails happens behind the scenes. Like there's some things that we see mostly results. Um, You know, there's some matchup things. Who's are, are the right players on the ice at the right time But, and I always think about this one, like the most conscientious coach from the perspective of support staffers, at least based on Vancouver Canucks history and what I hear is like John Tortorella. Like everyone says John Tortorella was the best to work for. He'd like remember birthdays, gifts for your wife uh, after you had a baby, like scheduled days off for staff, not just players, things that no other coach sort of thought about or implemented that Tortorella from a work-life balance from a like respect for staff perspective was like light years ahead of everyone else at. And then you think about his public persona and how different it is from the internal feedback of what he's like to work for. It's so hard to evaluate people when there's that kind of dichotomy, right?
2: Yeah, but Torts is someone I actually have a lot of time for as a coach. Me too. Even though this is his fifth NHL opportunity. By every means, right? I'm someone who would be saying, why are we giving him shot 1,000? The thing for me with Torts is, I think he learned a ton after Vancouver. I think the way he stepped back and... If you haven't already, it's a little bit old now, but go back and read what Allison Lucan wrote about him when he joined the Blue Jackets about how he changed his approach to coaching and how him and Mike Sullivan tried to learn about offense in a way they didn't before and thought maybe we shouldn't only be looking at goals. We need to look at scoring chances, and that's going to teach us on how offense is played in the league today and how we need to apply it to our team. There's something so valuable there, that willingness to adjust as old school and as traditional as he is. The sound bite might be that he doesn't, appreciate an analytic he used them in Columbus he used data and information because if he had it he did use it he's someone that's going to say in the media of course I coach by feel and by you know my, my what my heart says and things like that but he's taking everything in and still making an informed decision the other thing with someone like Tortorella and what I think is going to extend his time in the league and it did for someone like Lindy Ralph who's in the playoff now is having the right tacticians to work with him it was Mike Sullivan now it's Brad Shaw we saw Bradshaw work with him in Columbus and create that power kill and that defensive structure. He's with them now with the Flyers. He's someone I feel like the Canucks didn't use properly. Or Lindy Ruff, it's the change this year to have someone like Andrew Burnett run the uh, power play instead of Mark Recchi, who struck out for years. There definitely were adjustments made that can help keep someone like Torts and like Ruff, who seem more like people managers versus the tacticians, relevant for years.
0: Shayna, just before we let you go, uh, game three between Vegas and Edmonton tonight after the lottery, I think pretty much everyone would agree Connor McDavid, best player in the NHL. Is Leon Dreisaitl making a case that he is number two right behind his teammate in these playoffs?
2: That's a tough one um, because they're the top players for different reasons and there's other players who are so strong up there, but I think what is showing is, Just what a talent he is, and it wasn't a perfect regular season for him. The flaws that we know him to have, he has a regular season up until, you know, around March when everything started changing and he picked it up at five on five. But the ability to play in a high-pressure situation, if you're an elite player, you need to maintain your level of eliteness, right, when you get into the playoffs. That is your job to do what you did, maintain it, and be the difference maker that your team expects you to be. He's taking it up a notch. I I think there's the conversation to have is, is he one of the top – players in the league not just top offensive threats but is he a top player in this league I would say yes absolutely the other one is is he the best playoff performer in modern history I think the answer yes. is becoming a very clear yes
0: yeah it's phenomenal to do it once of the last two post seasons would be incredible the fact that he's you know tacking on this year after what he did last year is just ridiculous to watch Shayna fantastic stuff as always really enjoyed that conversation uh, thanks for doing this we'll talk soon
2: Thanks for having
0: me. That is Shayna Goldman uh, covering the NHL for The Athletic. And, yeah, as you said, Drance, a great piece up today. Oh, about, go read it. Uh, it's unreal. The NHL's recycled coaches issue and why it keeps happening, what the problems – with it are it's a fascinating discussion because as you brought up you know you also have the category of Dave Hackstall the second chance guy and you look what he's doing in his second chance and as Shayna was saying you know even a guy like Tortorella just because you're a retread doesn't mean you can't still learn and grow and incorporate new ideas and you know to to bring it back to the Canucks like yeah Rick Tockett technically this is his third stint as head coach but you look at the first two and there's they were such weird situations. I found it very hard to draw a lot of conclusions based on what he did in Arizona and Tampa to what it would mean here. You know what I mean? So even when you have somebody who's technically on spot, you know, stop two or three, it can be really hard to determine exactly what you're going to get out of them as a head coach.
1: Well, especially when they had such bizarre off-ice circumstances oh. and just a completely, um, you know, such a such a dramatic roster construction issue as like rick talkett managed in arizona where you have an an incredibly physical talented defensive group and basically no high-end forwards it's like how do you evaluate that guy (laughs) it's really
0: tough yeah and it's like well, well they played a really defensive system yeah you don't say they didn't have anyone who could score and they had a bunch of good defenders they had a bunch of good defensive players like no kidding they played a really tight defensive system well and i i'd add this you know
1: I've been well outside market opinion in my evaluation of Travis Green as a head coach for the last few years. But again, I don't know how you can ask any coach to get decent results with the defense core that he had when things started to go really wrong in 2021 and 2022. I'm still convinced he knows what he's doing. Like I'm still convinced that he could have a Dave Haxtell like glow up in his second opportunity, uh, we'll see if that happens this summer.
0: Yeah, it's just it's also interesting, you know, how difficult it can be to get that second chance when your first one doesn't go well, right? Like even you know, Dave Haxtell got it, but if things hadn't gone well this year, that probably would have been it, and it could have been it for him as a uh, as a head coaching candidate in the NHL, right? It can be really Absolutely. really tricky to get. second oh, and those I don't think could have. Yeah, I don't think
1: could have. This was uh, this was everything for Haxtell, but now. My goodness, he's gonna he's gonna have work for a while because this has been a tremendous job by him down in Seattle.
0: Uh, we will take a break. We will dive into the Florida-Toronto series. What is going on Let's with the Panthers? Go. Randy Moeller, a Florida broadcaster, will join us next on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650.